Hello. I've long believed that few ideas are as popular and as stupid as that of social mobility. So I really enjoyed reading a fascinating, enlightening, and sometimes quite moving new book, which makes well just that case. Well, that is, I enjoyed it until the last 50 pages, when the sympathies of the author and my own politics started to pretty clearly diverge. Today, I'll explore what I loved and what I questioned with the author of that book. You're listening to the podcast that puts leading thinkers on the spot by asking for one big idea to help shape our new era. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I'm delighted to be joined by Selena Todd, who's Professor of Modern History, Oxford University. She's written a book that I've been reading all week, absolutely fascinating book. One of those books, when I put it down, I, if I had the time, I'd have picked it straight up again to read it a second time. It's called Snakes and Ladders, The Great British Social Mobility Myth. So, Selena, there's so much I want to talk to you about in relation to the book. But let's start with where it came from. It's clearly a, a labour of love that's an incredibly strongly researched book, a huge amount in it. It's obviously been a, a major piece of work. What, what inspired you to write it? I began researching a book on working class life in about 2008, which became a book called The People, The Rise and Fall of the Working Class, which came out in 2014. And that was really about people who had remained within the working class. But along the way, I came across some of the stories that I really wanted to go back to and have gone back to in Snakes and Ladders of people who climbed the ladder. And I guess the other thing that came out of the research for that earlier book was the aspiration to climb the ladder and, and the ambition to do so. One of the things that struck me as a historian of, among other things, the labour movement, is that that's an aspiration that's often been sneered at and thought of as, as distrustful by many on the left. And so I thought, well, it would be really good to, to tease it out a bit. I mean, I think it's not just actually distrusted by people on the left, but you know, if we think about, say, someone like Hyacinth Bouquet in the BBC sitcom Keeping Up Appearances, this idea of, of a kind of snobbery of getting above your station is, is something that's very resonant in British culture and has been for the last century. And I, I wanted to see where that came from. So I want to get into the, the methodology of the book and the stories of the book in a second. But let, let's just, for people who, who don't see what's wrong with the notion of social mobility, let's just explore some of the problems with it. So one problem, which actually you don't go into a great deal in the book, is that it's not clear what we mean by social mobility a lot of the time. So is it absolute social mobility, so simply the number of people who can move up in a society, or is it relative social mobility, the amount of movement up and down? You focus mainly, don't you, on both the up and the down, as, as the title of your book indicates? Yes, I do. I'm much more interested in, as you say, relative social mobility, because one of the things that I'm very interested in is how people experience social mobilities. Social mobility is usually thought about in purely statistical terms. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to say, that's a very valuable method. We need that kind of hard data. But it's also important to work out how people experience movement and what people perceive to be movement and what the mobile are perceived to be doing by those who have power over them. And so for all those reasons, I was really interested in looking at specific generations and what mobility looked like for each of those generations, how people compared themselves with their peers. But just to carry on with the kind of the fundamental problems with this concept of social mobility, the second 
kind of issue with it is that, and your book confronts this directly, particularly towards the end, there's this kind of conflict between the meritocratic ideal of kind of starting gate equality, but after the starting gate, people can diverge according to effort and talent and an egalitarian view that says that, that all human beings should be broadly valued in similar kinds of ways. But the problem with that dichotomy is that we know from all around the world, the societies that are the most egalitarian, that is to say, the ones that have the least overall inequality are also, generally speaking, the most meritocratic. So it's a false dichotomy. And, and people who, who talk about social mobility often talk about it as an alternative to a more egalitarian society. So, so that's one of the other problems with it, isn't it, Selena? Yes, very much so. And one of the reasons why I wanted to research it as a history is that I think very often policymakers hark back to particular periods in our past, the, the post-Second World War period being the obvious one, when there was greater upward mobility and say, aha, it can be done, we can create meritocracies. So I thought, well, let's go back and see whether that's the case. And by looking at British society from the 1880s to the present, what I've been able to show is that we've never had a meritocracy. We've never had a society where talent and hard work enable you to get on. The other great joy of taking a historical perspective is that you get to see how subjective some of these ideas about talent and success and the way that we define those kinds of concepts truly are. And one of the things that I really try to bring out in the book is how it is that certain groups manage to get their particular skills defined as professional or their particular tastes defined as intelligence in ways that then exclude others from clawing their way up to the top rungs of the ladder. Well, that then takes me to the third kind of major critique of this notion of social mobility, which is banded around uncritically so much. And that is the one articulated probably by Michael Young better than anybody else in his book about meritocracy, which is a dystopian, not a utopian novel, in which he points out that a society where inequality is seen to be based upon merit is even more injurious to people when societies where inequality is based on hereditary privilege, for example, because what it says then is not only are you suffering from being at the bottom end of society, but you deserve to be there because the reason you're there is because you lack merit. And of course, then what you end up with is a society like ours, where the myth of social mobility is grabbed, hold. So people do have this notion that the people at the top of society are there due to merit. But of course, in reality, overwhelmingly, the evidence shows that people at the top of society are there because of the privileges of their birth. Yeah, and I think that's a rhetoric and an idea that policymakers have been putting out since the 1980s. I think that the aspiration to meritocracy, which really became part of the political landscape after 1945, was sincerely meant by politicians who wanted to create a better life for everybody. And it did actually go hand in hand with the idea that there should be a welfare state that would enable everybody to fulfil their talents. It's just that what they never really tackled was the idea that some of those talents should be valued and remunerated more than others. I think we're now in a very different landscape, but certainly some of those ideas of meritocracy since the Thatcher era have been used to justify a hierarchy which is based largely on, on wealth, much of it inherited. I mean, the people who I spoke to for the book didn't believe that we lived in a meritocracy, actually. One of the things that I was trying to get at in the book is that for many people, the idea of going back to a meritocracy is quite attractive. And probably 
that was true of myself years ago. And doing the research for the book, one of the things that, that came out was realising that we've never had something that looks like a meritocratic way of valuing people and that, that we need to think very differently about organising society if we're going to unlock everybody's potential. So someone listening to our conversation might, I think by now, misunderstand the nature of the book. And, and I want to address that because for me, one of the joys of the book, the reason I, I say I found it moving was the stories, the first-hand accounts that you offer of people's experience, those who were unable to climb the ladder, those who climbed the ladder and didn't find that it quite matched their expectations, those who fell down the ladder. Tell us, Selena, a bit about the methodology of the book. Because when I thought, oh, hang on, I'm going to read a book that's 350 pages long about social mobility. I thought it would be interesting, but quite hard work. Actually, I found it completely in engrossing because of the way in which you interweave the statistical data, but much more the stories of people themselves. Tell us how you got those stories and the way in which, why you chose this kind of way of telling the story. Yeah, I really wanted to focus on people's experience of social mobility for several reasons, really. One of the, the reasons is that I do think that in British society, we've often caricatured those who wish to climb the ladder in quite sneering and derogatory ways. And, and I wanted to explore that and explore actually what, what was really there behind the scenes for those people. But I also wanted to think about how social mobility affects those who come down the ladder, who we don't very often hear about, and also the wider group of which these people are part. Because one of the things that strikes me about the statistical way of thinking about social mobility is that we then lose sight of what happens to the people who are left behind. And also, how do people climb to the top? Who's supporting them? And what might we be able to say about those people? And also, what about the people who aspire to do so? and for very good reasons, can't do so. So I went looking for stories. Now, I was lucky because I'd already written this book, The People, about working class people and their history. And through that, I'd undertaken some interviews, which I was able then to use in this book. And I thought, right, that's a great starting point. Where to go next? There are archives across Britain that are full of testimonies of people talking about their lives, or in some cases, having published autobiographies with local presses. So I went and delved into all of those, you know, and anyone who's listening who's interested in following up that, you know, your local studies library, even if it's not open, they're often very good at digitising some of these stories. You know, you can, you can find amazing oral history collections there. So that was one way. But I also decided that I would consult the Mass Observation Archive. Mass Observation was set up in the late 1930s as a left-leaning social research organisation that aimed to investigate everyday lives in Britain. And they produced masses of material, including interviews with people, and they encouraged people to keep diaries in the 30s and 40s. And what I discovered is that many of the people who chose to write for Mass Observation were themselves upwardly mobile, and they saw the writing and the engagement with Mass Observation as a way of making sense of the journey that they were on. Now, Mass Observation was reinvented in the 1980s. It shut down in the early 1950s, but it, it was reinvented in the early 1980s at the University of Sussex. And it's possible for anybody to become a volunteer writer for Mass Observation and be sent quarterly questionnaires on all kinds of things that researchers like me are nosy enough to want to know about. And so I worked with Mass Observation to send out what they call a directive 
to people in 2016. And we just got fulsome responses because it turns out that the later generation of mass observers are themselves very often people who've experienced social mobility, either going upwards or downwards, and had plenty to say about it. So, so that was absolutely fascinating. The stories that you tell and the quotations that you provide from the mass observation, the more recent study, these are very reflective people. And I have sat in focus groups with ordinary voters. I've knocked on hundreds of doors and spoken to people in working class communities. And I have to say that I have heard in those contexts a harsher kind of view of the world, a more judgmental view of the world, more common criticisms of so-called benefit scroungers or accusations about immigrants or whatever it might be. Does that suggest that your sample is unrepresentative or is it that the very act of keeping a record, the very act of reflecting on your life in the way that people do through these processes leads people to move to more considered ways of thinking about what's happening in society? Yes, I think that they do, on the whole, people, whatever their class, think quite carefully about their place in society. And one of the reasons why I do delve into personal testimonies is I've been very concerned over the last 20 years or so at the way that policymakers and many researchers have moved towards focus groups, knocking on doors, as a way to understand people's experiences and views. Because I don't think that I mean, it's one way of doing it, but I don't think it's it's a very in-depth way. Um, it's not a very considered way, and it doesn't allow people to reflect at length on their lives and their experiences and to take the conversation in directions that they would like to. So what we tried to do when we sent out the Mass Observation Directive was to say, tell us how you define social mobility. Are there people in your family who you think have done well or not so well? How about your wider friendship group? Where would you say you are now compared to mom or dad? And through that, what we were asking people to do was to reflect not only on their personal experience, but also on other people who they love and feel connected to. I think for all of us, we're more nuanced and more careful in our thoughts when we're talking about people who who we know and who we care about. One of the things that came out through the book from the recent mass observation material, but also from earlier personal testimonies, is how worried parents are, particularly in eras of economic insecurity, about making sure that their children do as well as they can. You mentioned there your surprise at how working class people in the book spoke. I guess I was less surprised about that. One of the groups that I was quite surprised about were the more middle class group who tend to opportunity hoard for their children by using private education or the education system instrumentally or unpaid internships. And I came to have a kind of sympathy for them, actually, because what I realised was that that came as well from an anxiety and, and a recognition that if they didn't make sure that their children clung to the same perch on the ladder as they were on, their children faced a very difficult future in the early 21st century. Yeah, no, I completely got that empathy in, in the book. And and by the way, I think that if you know one had a companion volume to a book which critiques the common sense but deeply flawed notion of social mobility, it would be one about the common sense but deeply flawed idea of public opinion. Because, you know, I'm a great fan of deliberative democracy, Selena. And, and what deliberative democracy shows you is that 
what people say when they're asked for an opinion without any chance to think about it, talk about it and consider it is completely different to the opinion they have when they've had a chance to listen to a range of opinions and talk with their fellow citizens. So the way that we ask people questions, the time that we give them to reflect makes an enormous difference to what they say about us. But yet we live in a world where there's this kind of tyranny of incredibly shallow forms of public opinion and politicians and others are constantly referring to the fact that 60% of people believe this or 80% of people believe that. And that's one of the powers of your book is that these are people who have the time to reflect and the time to think deeply about their lives. One of the things that struck me over and again in the book was the sadness that often is part of people's life stories. Sometimes sadness because they haven't gone up the ladder. Sometimes sadness because they've gone down the ladder. Sometimes sadness because they have gone up the ladder, but at at great cost. They don't feel particularly at home in the lives that they've got now or the communities they've got now. The phrase that kept coming back to me was Richard Sennett's phrase, the hidden injuries of class. There's quite a lot of that in your book, isn't there? The way in which our system impinges on people and leads so many people not to live the lives they want to live. Yes, I think that that's really something that came out for me as well doing the research. And as you say, with many different groups of people, one of the things that really struck me with the personal experiences that I was researching was the very hard work that it took to climb even just a couple of rungs of the ladder for most of the last century. And that that was hard work, not just of the man or less frequently woman who managed to climb up the ladder, but for their wider family as well. And so what that often resulted in, and I'm thinking here particularly of some of the people who I spoke to or read of who were growing up in the so-called golden age of social mobility, the two decades after the Second World War, when there was more upward social mobility than ever before or since, even for them, there was a kind of guilt sometimes about the, the hard work and the stress that their parents had been placed under by trying to get them through the 11 plus exam that would get them into grammar school and so on. In earlier generations, it comes out in poorer families where, for example, a son is given an education that his sister can't have or an older brother doesn't get an education that a younger brother is able to have. I remember one testimony. There's a chapter in the book on Clarks in the very early 20th century who were a real object of social suspicion at that point because they were seen absolutely as trying to climb out of manual working class jobs into a better life as indeed they were. And there was one man whose testimony I use in the book who had been desperate to do that kind of job and couldn't because he was the oldest in his very large family. And so he had to start work immediately. And he said even decades later with this real passion, I was so envious of my younger brother because he got to go and work in an office. And you think it affects everybody in that family, in that community to have this kind of hierarchy and this this lottery of opportunity. A couple of other elements of the book that I want to explore before we get into this contested terrain of your last 50 pages. So as a feminist, Selina, you draw our attention to the way in which the very concept of social mobility is a gendered concept until really quite recently and possibly still now, which is that it has tended to mean the social mobility of men and women have been simply seen as a kind of adjunct to whatever is happening to men in the class system. And one of the great strengths of your book is the way in which you draw our attention to the women's story of social mobility. 
Yes, it really struck me that when sociologists started measuring social mobility using statistics back in the 1970s, a very eminent sociologist who did some great work, which I cite in the book, on social mobility, said that the model for measuring social mobility just could not count women. And that in the end, that didn't matter because he couldn't see any way that a woman could affect the class position of the rest of her household which was interesting because men were not actually judged on that basis. Men were seen very much as individuals and still are in social mobility data. We count people as individuals, not as households. But women were summarily dismissed. And because the way that social mobility is calculated statistically relies a lot on occupation, although increasingly also income, women have really lost out uh, because even today they have much more interrupted kind of career trajectories than men do. And of course, in previous generations, although most women worked, many middle class women didn't work. And again, very often the work that a woman was doing, one of the things that I discovered in talking to and listening to women was only part of what they saw as enabling them to achieve upward mobility. And what their stories led me to was actually a truth that turned out to be right for many of the men in the book as well, which is that at various points in history, there are other elements which are also really central to where a person feels themselves to be in a society. So for the last couple of generations, housing, because the housing market has been so difficult to get a foothold in. In earlier generations, something as simple as clothing marriage, also very important for men as well as for women, actually. Sometimes a man could could go a rung up the ladder because it was the case that by the 1960s, more women were working in office jobs than men were. So actually, very often, a female clerk or a female school teacher would be married to a man in a manual job, but they would have a slightly different life to those who were both in manual jobs, where couples were both in manual jobs. So that element of it was really intriguing to me. But then also the incredibly influential role of women in assisting male social mobility. And one of the lessons that I took away from doing the research is that those at the top really always rely on there being people at the bottom helping them up, whether it's wives who went out to work in order to fund a husband's degree course or vocational training, or mothers who were much more influential than fathers, actually, in the educational performance of their children. So a huge amount of unpaid labour was done by women in those families that produced an upwardly mobile man. The other thing about the book, which I loved, is the subtlety of the way in which you describe the different eras. So the book is is organised around a periodization going back, as you say, to the late 19th century of different eras and the kind of story of mobility. But it isn't simply a kind of simple statistical assessment of variations in social mobility. You capture things about those Eras, And that's really one of the reasons I found the book so completely engrossing, because I kept thinking about my own family. I thought about my grandfather, who was a technician at Dunlop and got sacked because Dunlop was just an incredibly hierarchical old boy network kind of firm, a disastrous firm. And he, he was great, but he was kind of working class background. And I guess he maybe didn't fit in. Or my grandmother, whose whole life 
was about getting away from the working class and the rest of her family and finally managed to claw her way up to be a primary school headmistress and 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 also was a kind of high Tory as well. That was all part of the package. Or I thought about my own parents and the way in which my mother's social status has moved around depending upon the relationships she's been in. And then finally, the the, the way she's established her own independence. Of course, my father being a sociologist, that resonated as well. And also the decades that spoke to my own past. I, I love, for example, the way in which you captured that essence in the 1980s, or that kind of feeling of do it yourself, that one of the ways in which young people responded to the kind of ideology of Thatcherism and to the fraying away of kind of collective provision was this kind of sense of, well, you have to do it yourself, which in some ways was quite inventive in areas like, you know, music and culture. Very much so, very much so. Yes, that generation and that generational experience in the 1980s really fascinated me because I think we've still got in popular culture and also in academic history a very black and white view of the 1980s. Either Thatcher was good or Thatcher was completely bad. And I think that what that focus on Thatcher and Thatcherism has led us to, to neglect, really, is wider cultural trends and wider, wider social changes. And one of the things that really struck me was the way that both the, the left-wing movements, which were so resurgent in the 1960s and 1970s, really gave a generation of young people a sense of entitlement to a better way of life how that influenced then merged with some of the political messages of the 1980s about you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and did create incredible innovations in music and, and in the arts. Although one of the things that I say there is that the doll was absolutely central to those. You know, if you, if you think about a writer like Jeff Dyer, if you think about a group like the Smiths, they're very much reliant on state benefits to get them through. In a way, they treat it like an arts bursary. Well, there was a community program, wasn't there, that I remember in the 80s, a lot of my mates were on, where you could get the dole for cultural and voluntary activities. Absolutely. And things like training schemes, you know, the YTS youth training scheme and other training schemes that were introduced were sometimes taken on by places like museums, galleries, music centres to give people an apprenticeship in the arts and in culture. And what I came away from that bit of the research thinking was, we really have to have bursaries to help people get into these sectors because it is just an absolute flourishing, I think, in the late 1970s and 1980s. Having said which, of course, there's a huge majority of people who are really let down by the mass unemployment and for whom it's a real cause of despair, not least some older people. You know, we often focus on young people and youth unemployment when we're thinking about opportunity. One of the things I wanted to do in the book was to recognise that life does not end when you're 35. And some of the most traumatic stories that I heard from the 1980s were men who had gone into blue collar jobs in the 50s or 60s, believing that they had a job for life, worked really hard, and then found themselves out on their ear in 1985, 1986, with very little prospect of, of another job to go into. So, Selena, we've got to get down to it. We've got to get down to those last 50 pages and the points at which I started to think, hang on, I'm not sure about this. And I'm sure we can do it amicably. It's very cheeky of me, I know, because we're talking about your book. To disagree with you, that's not really what one's supposed to do when one talks to people about their books. But nevertheless, I will plough on. I guess... The reason for the disagreement is clear. In the book, you pretty clear that you were a fan of Jeremy Corbyn and his program. And indeed, you have a program at the end, which is probably even more radical than Corbyn's. You would want, for example, to more or less kind of abolish the marketplace for jobs and instead for jobs all to be paid pretty much the same wages, for example. And you're pretty dismissive of 
the New Labour era, which, of course, I was involved in. And so I felt, I have to say, that there were times when you weren't entirely fair. So, for example, when you talk about housing tenure at one point in the book, you include the whole of the housing association sector in your figure for private renting rather than putting it alongside council housing, which is the normal way of doing things. You say that inequality rose under New Labour when actually I think the Gini coefficient was stable and and slightly fell. And actually the critical thing is that Labour's own measures, Labour's own tax and reform measures were highly redistributive. and, And Labour did more to reduce child poverty than almost any country has managed to achieve. And when you look at the public sector and New Labour, you speak a lot about market reforms, which you're opposed to. And I accept that critique, not nearly so much possibly about the kind of level of investment that went into public services. And so for me, what happened under the New Labour years, and it was far from perfect, but was that there was an egalitarian thrust going on. Poverty was reduced. Labour's own measures were highly redistributive. But yes, it was associated with a rhetoric which spoke to the kind of individualism, to English individualism, spoke to the fact that a lot of voters do have some notion that one's success should be to do with merit. And the reason for that progress was that capacity to build that coalition, as it were, between the egalitarian meritocratic sympathies of the British people. I don't think you've got much sympathy for that view, do you? No, not really. I guess, you know, it was really led by the way that people in the book had experienced that era. And yeah, I think, you know, you put forward some good defences there of new labour. And indeed, in the last chapters of the book, one of the things that I was trying to unpick was what a difference 2010 made. And it makes a huge difference. It's very clear that inequality has widened significantly in the last 10, 11 years. And that that's precisely because of the policies of the Conservative and Liberal Democrat coalition, and then of the Conservative governments that we've had since. So there were definitely differences there. But as we've been saying, the book is led by experiences, by personal experiences. And one of the very striking things about those experiences with the latter two generations in the book, those who were born in the 1970s and those who were born from the 1980s onwards, was the continuity, really, in the 2000s, that the idea that many jobs were more insecure than they had been, the failure by New Labour to row back on anti-trade union legislation, meant that there was an inability for people to be able to negotiate for jobs to have a degree of value in the way that they had been able to in the 1960s and 1970s. And also, one of the things that comes across in the book, generation after generation, is both a desire for security, but also a desire for greater control over one's life. And one of the great continuities between the 1980s and the present is a real feeling of a lack of control, which I think comes in part through a lack of regional investment. And also with that, investment in regional power. Devolution, I think, did a lot of good. But municipal councils and the kinds of responsibilities that they were able to exercise from the 30s through to the 1970s are no longer centres of democratic power in the same way. And people didn't feel that their housing association was as accountable as, say, council housing had been in the 1960s, because all of that changed by the 1980s because of public spending cuts. So I think there were differences. It does make a real difference to who is in power. But, you know, I think the other thing is that one of the things that I'm trying to capture in the book is what's the political and social landscape like for most people, 
not the way that it seems to politicians. You know, you said before, oh, my programme is even more radical than Jeremy Corbyn's. Labour got a lot wrong in the last few years. If they hadn't, they wouldn't have lost in 2019 so badly. But the fact is that the Labour Party became the largest democratic party in Europe under Jeremy Corbyn. And many, many people voted for Labour. There was a massive swing to Labour in the 2017 general election. So I'm not sure that it's always accurate or helpful to use terms like radical or mainstream, you know, extreme or centre, which is what I hear a lot of political commentators doing, because that didn't really map onto the way that the people who who I spoke to and whose stories I used in the book thought. I have to say that yet most of them didn't have a particularly strong party political affiliation. I think that's true of most people today, isn't it? We know that party political affiliation is is very weak at the moment. And that was true of, of earlier generations too. I think what many of them felt about the period from the early 21st century was a real a real lack of control, a real inability to be able to predict the future for themselves and their children, a lack of the kind of certainties that things like an occupational pension or a living wage could give them. The lack of certainty that knowing things like your local school is going to do a good enough job can give people, that just wasn't there for them, whatever government was in power. And I do think that the kind of the idea of the marketplace, the idea under new labour, that schools should continue to compete with each other for pupil numbers, for example, that that does have a lot to do with creating uncertainty. I accept the criticisms, but I don't know... (laughs) Minimum wage, expansion of child care, major steps forward in LGBT rights, none of this. Yeah, I don't, well, well, yeah, I completely agree with that. But you're talking to me about a book about social mobility. And so what I'm saying to you is it's not about saying, oh, here's a whole scale criticism of New Labour. But it, it would be unfair, I think, to suggest that I should have included all of that when I haven't done that for other governments. The thing that I'm focused on in this book is... How do people think about and experience social mobility? And the fact is that that kind of meritocratic ideal is not one that has worked for most people. In fact, it's worked pretty badly for them. And that's something, you know, I say right at the end of the book, you know, that aspiration to social mobility, it speaks to the endurance of hope and determination among people in Britain. But it also speaks to the fear of poverty and the fear of insecurity. And that, I think, has endured throughout different governments of whatever political hue. I agree with so much of this, but I guess my point is that sometimes it may be maybe politically realistic to speak to meritocratic principles while implementing egalitarian solutions. But look, let's finish with something that we agree about, which is the importance of the regional dimension to this, which is something which you talk about particularly towards the end of the book, although it crops up throughout. Levelling up is, of course, the new big idea. I'm just interested in your kind of thoughts about this notion of levelling up, which, again, is is extremely popular, but not very clearly sought through. How does the notion of levelling up relate to your ideas? And does it remind you of some of the flaws of the notion of social mobility? Yeah, I think with those kinds of phrases, you just always have to ask, you know, where's it coming from? You know, and and what does it mean? And I'm very struck that, you know, I have to say the phrase social mobility meant very little to many of the people who I spoke to through mass observation, right? I mean, it just wasn't a catchphrase for them. Neither was meritocracy, particularly. Leveling up never came up. 
So yeah, I'm not sure that it that it really has particular resonance. I think what is really important, and I think that Harold Wilson managed to do this when they were introducing comprehensive education in the 1960s. He said, look, I want to give every child a grammar school education. And it's that absolute idea, isn't it, that giving something to everyone doesn't dilute its excellence. What it might do is enrich it and enrich everybody's opportunities. And I think that that is easier sometimes to do on a local level because we can create centres for excellence, but also people have an idea locally of what they need and of what quality looks like. And one of the examples that comes out in the book is the local press that for most of the 20th century, regional media provided a stepping stone, albeit for only a few, but for a few working class kids to get up the ladder, sometimes making it to Fleet Street, often not, but being able to do something creative that they wanted to do. Other ways, more recent ways that local initiatives work. Yeah, I spend part of my life in Manchester and one of the things I've been really inspired by here is looking at where the modern cooperative movement is going. So, you know, we hear all the time oh, it's unrealistic to suggest that, you know, people should have, you know, a flat wage structure. Well, yeah, I live down the road from an incredible cooperative called Unicorn, which basically undercuts most of the local supermarkets, sells really healthy food at cheap prices. And all of the almost 100 workers there are on a flat wage structure. They all have an input into how that workplace is controlled and organised. And it's also a fabulously creative, bright, happy place to go into, even in lockdown. You know, so, so I think that there are these great initiatives, which if done on a small scale, can really pay off and really show us that we can't just have arbitrary global ideas of what excellence looks like. I think we can have a global idea of what failure looks like, and that's allowing the hoarding of wealth to be seen as success because that's very dangerous for most of us. And it means that power and wealth end up in the hands of fewer and fewer people who then have no interest whatsoever in widening opportunity. Well, thank you, Sina. So even if I did have some disagreements with the analysis of New Labour, that doesn't in any way diminish my enthusiasm for this wonderful book, Snakes and Ladders, The Great British Social Mobility Myth. And one of the reasons I encourage people to read it is because it will make you think about your own life and your friends' lives and your family's lives with a greater kind of richness. It was a book I kept putting down just in order to reflect on the people that I know and the stories that they've had. And it's a fantastic book. Selena, I'm delighted to have spent the time talking it through with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.